Welcome to the Theology Research News podcast, which brings highlights of the latest research and activities at the KU Leuven Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies. Today we feature a lecture by Alain Thomasset entitled Moral Theology and Theological Ethics since 1968. I'm happy to return the place I did my doctoral research 23 years ago under the direction of Professor Johann Verstraten. This research was on the link between Paul Ricoeur's biblical hermeneutics and the foundation of social ethics. And that I have to say that it continues to inspire me, particularly now in the work on the ethics of virtue I'm working on, and on the link between the Bible and morality, two subjects that I have kept very busy for me last years. So what is the major project of moral theology since 1968? That means the beginning of the English program, I mean. <laughs> well, in the introduction, I would say that since 1968, moral theology has experienced several debates that indicate as many places of research and work for the renewal of this discipline according to the spirit and desire of the Second Vatican Council. This conference will aim to present the different phases and current challenges of moral theology. I will limit my presentation to fundamental moral theology, leaving aside the various fields of more specialized ethics. In a way, the research program of moral theology today is still the one set by Vatican II in his famous document, Optatam Totius, I read. Let the other theological disciplines be renewed through a more living contact with the mystery of Christ and the history of salvation. Special care will be taken to perfect moral theology whose scientific presentation, more nourished by the doctrine of Holy Scripture, will highlight the greatness of the vocation of the faithful in Christ and their obligation to bear fruit in charity for the life of the world. Optatanto Tews, number 16. You know, will, I guess, very well this quotation. After the progressive uh, differentiation of disciplines from the 13th century between theology and Bible, and from the 16th century between dogmatic theology and moral theology, it is now an operation of reunification that is at work to find a new the close link that unite morality, scripture, and dogmatic, without forgetting spirituality and the human sciences, all this through the mediation of philosophy. Morality, as a philosophy or a theology of action, is essentially a crossroad science that requires the collaboration of a multiple point of views and skills. Is what makes moral theology so charming and challenging at the same time. <laughs> Nevertheless, the history of the past 50 years has shown that this conciliar program is open to several interpretations. Before coming back in more detail to the current research projects, I would like to make a brief historical excursus. So first, the post-council debates. It will be four of them. The first one is the debate between autonomous morality 
and the ethics of faith. The immediate aftermath of the Council saw the development of a confrontation, well known in the 70s, between the supporters of an autonomous morality and those of an ethics of faith. Interpreting the Council's declaration on the just autonomy of earthly realities, on the call to the vocation of all, acknowledging its refusal to speak of natural law, some theologians, such as Alphonse Auer, Joseph Fuchs, have tried to implement a moral theology that is in line with the great Catholic moral tradition, emphasizes in a renewed way the universal dimension of morality and highlights the central role of human reason in the elaboration of ethical norms common to all. This autonomous morality did not mean ignorance of Christian specificity, but did not place it in the elaboration of the norms of actions, but more in terms of the motivations for action, or the profound inspiration of ways of being and acting. On the other side, for those who believe in the ethics of faith, such as Philippe Delay, Hans-Jürs von Balthasar, it was rather a matter of taking seriously the call of the Council Fathers to root morality in the Christian mystery as a whole, and in particular, to better perceive the Christian specificity of the ethical norms present in the scriptures. Christ being the starting and culminating point of Christian life, this ethics of faith wishes to take more into account the dimension of revelation, which allows the action of Christians to find, through the mediation of the church, a security and truth that is otherwise inaccessible. It leads me to the second debate, a debate between liberals and communitarians, which take place, took place in the 80s and 90s. This debate, which in some way is not over, the preceding debate is not over, but he shifted in the 80s and the 90s as a result of changes in the social, historical, and cultural conditions of Christianity and religious, religious uh, tradition in a secularized and pluralistic society. The more acute perception of cultural differences, the singularization of individual paths, as well as the accentuation of the phenomenon of globalization, have led us to consider the place of Christian traditions in postmodern society with fragile or even exhausted symbolic resources. The debate between liberals and communitarians, which in a way reboots the previous debate between autonomous morality and the ethics of faith, then opposes those like Alastair McIntyre, I'm sure you know that, and Stanley Ovavas, who want to highlight the specificity of the ethical formation of Christian subjects within particular narrative traditions, to those, on the other side, who insist on the need to take into account a moral consensus and the abstention of metaphysical or religious particularity in public debate. And they do, that, they do so to ensure social cohesion and peace. While liberals 
such as John Rawls or Donald Working, insist on the notion of justice and its possible common definition. The communitarians stress the need to agree on the good to be pursued in common before any consideration of justice. They highlight the diversity of ethical traditions that sometimes immeasurably nourish the substantial content of justice, which are always marked by history and the human community. The theoretical debate on the elaboration and foundation of moral norms therefore rebounded politically on whether or not, in a pluralistic society, it was possible to reach agreement on major ethical conflicts. The third debate is about the nature and morality of human act. It seems to me that the two debates, in fact, partly mediated by a third one, more complex, more diffuse, the one that concerned the consideration of the nature of human acts and their morality. Here, philosophy and human sciences play a considerable role and choosing one philosophy or another, choosing whether or not to hear the voice of the human sciences changes the way to do things. To get to the point, the question is whether is to know whether the morality of a human act can be considered in truth outside its roots in the history of an individual and a human group, outside the context of action, involving several actors and outside the intentionality or purpose of such an act within a chain of action that extends over the time. The way in which Veritatis Splendor in 1993 and in general the writings of the Magisterian of Job Paul II have interpreted certain theological tendencies that he calls proportionalist or theologist, accusing them of relativism or consequentialism, shows that in the, in the name of safeguarding objective morality, the Magisterian has, resisting, has resisted taking into account aspect other than the materiality of the act in defining its morality. You know, only the materiality of the act was taken into account, or mainly. This resistance, understandable in the context of moral relativism, has raised questions to many moral theologians in the very name of the theological tradition, notably that of Thomas Aquinas, and because of the current works on the philosophy of action. As in previous debates, to situate oneself on this question requires opposition on the question of truth and on the articulation between the universal dimension and the particular dimension of morals. What is at stake is all to link metaphysics and morality. It leads me to the third the fourth aspect of this short historical review, the Pope Francis turn. Pope Francis' current pontificate has renewed the moral question by positioning himself resolutely on the pastoral level and on the accompaniment of situation of fragility. Already in Evangelii Gaudium and Laudato Si', but more particularly in Amoris Laetitia, 
and the Synod on the Family, the Pope shifts the emphasis placed in his time by the Magisterium of John Paul II on universal norms towards a current consideration of the need for personal and pastoral discernment, especially for families in so-called irregular situations. In general, Francis notes that the simple reminder of norms is insufficient or even ineffective to give meaning to moral life and motivate postmodern subjects for whom the law is difficult to understand. Hence, we have a new emphasis in the magisterial discourse and theological debates on an ethics of growth of subjects and the development of a learning of virtues for the conversion of hearts. I remember that Professor Bugrave in that time was working on an ethic of growth like that. I would add that the express of the desire that greater account be taken of the conscience of the faithful and the work of grace present in every human person. Amoris Letitia has generated and continues to generate debate and resistance from part of the Church, as you know. And with the Dominican Jean-Miguel Garrigue, I try to respond to the objection, the dubia, of the cardinals to the orthodoxy of this exhortation by showing its essential complementarity with Veritatis Splendor. It was not an easy task, but <laughs> we did it. From this historical, brief historical description, it would have been good also to speak about natural law debates, but I will come back to that afterwards. I would like to develop now a point of view on the immense field of research in moral theology today. It will be not without taking a position. So my second part, the main fields of research. Here we will have also four debates. The first one is the question of the relationship between law, conscience, and truth, the evaluation of moral act, and the question of natural law. As I have just mentioned, the greater or lesser trust placed in the conscience of the faithful in its relationship to the law of the Church is a point of debate that remains lively. In speaking of the delicate links between conscience and truth, or conscience and law, it is of course a long tradition that is at stake, from the fathers of the Church to recent debates, without forgetting Thomas Aquinas and the work of the 16th century moralist on grace. But the question is no more acute as we have seen with regard to the 50th anniversary of Humani Vitae, or with regard to the discussions around the Family Synod and Amoris Laetitia exhortation. While Christians can hear a call for vigilance and attention to the use of sexuality as an important point in human life, they are reluctant to see in the proposed standards on contraception, for example, rules that describe an objective reality that is binding on all and every circumstances. In the Second Vatican Council on Morality, conscience 
plays a central role. It is described in Gaudium Espes number 16 as, quote, human most secret center, the sanctuary where he or she is alone with God and where God's voice is heard. It is stated a little further in fidelity to conscience, Christians united with others must seek together the truth and the just solution to so many moral problems raised by both private and social life, end of quote. In the same document, concerning the role of the laity in the world and their way of discerning the good, it is specified that it is for their conscience, previously formed, to inscribe the divine law in the earthly city. And with regard to the transmission of life, it is said, quote, that the judgment is ultimately to be determined by the spouses themselves before God. Gaudium Espes, number 15. Document continue. They have the obligation to always follow their conscience, a conscience that must conform to thy divine law, and that they remain faithful to the magisterium of the church, authorized interpreter of the law in the light of the gospel. End of quote. Moreover, it is precisely because conscience is the immediate norm of human action and is inviolable that its freedom must be preserved, as the conciliar document on religious freedom abundantly emphasizes. The Council, therefore, lay down, lays down clear principle with regard to conscience. It is the ultimate place of moral decision. In this respect, the Council returns beyond the Neo-Thomist era and the defensive position of the 19th century to the great Christian tradition. But the Council also poses a delicate tension between conscience, truth, and freedom, the balance of which has been the subject of various interpretations. Conscience is constitutively inhabited by an internal tension between a freedom that makes it autonomous and a purpose that leads it towards and obliges towards truth. We could say, if you use a neologism, that conscience is aletheonomous, you know, dependent on, the, on truth. This point is precisely the subject of a debate. Because what is truth in morality? Is it reductible to the truth of the content of the face of revelation or of another nature? Is the necessary link between divine revelation and Christian morality direct or indirect? At what level should the magisterium, as a qualifier interpreter of revelation, manifest its duty to enlighten conscience? A certain way of answering these questions consists in linking in an almost immediate way and with successive shifts, truth, human nature, interpretation of the revelation by the magisterium, and objective morality imposed to the conscience. We then find ourselves with a very legalistic moral system, or at least the danger of it, where the authorized interpretation of revelation becomes the keystone of a building 
that defines objective moral standards imposed on the conscience in the name of the truth. Another way of looking at it would be to preserve the tension between the freedom of conscience and the search for truth by questioning both the link between revelation and norms and by placing the norms set in the right place in moral discernment. What I think it is urgent today to specify in current research concerns precisely this relationship between conscience, norms, and the concrete situation of moral discernment. Once again, in the exhortation Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis develops to a large extent this way of conceiving moral judgment. Without in any way challenging the moral and sacramental norm of indissolubility and the Christian ideal of marriage, the Pope insists on the need to take into account the real situation of people and to accompany them in their fragility in order to better integrate them into the life of the Church. Pleading for a law of graduality, which by the way he takes up from John Paul II, for the consideration of mitigating circumstances and the necess necessary discernment of singular situation, he recalls that the conscience of persons must be better taken into account and affirms that given the diverse circumstances in which persons are placed, quote, since the degree of responsibility is not the same in all cases, the consequences or effect of a norm need not necessarily be always the same. Priests have the mission to accompany interested persons on the path of discernment according to the teaching of the Church and the orientation of the Bishop. Amoris Laetitia, number 300. Such a call to examine singular situation is based on a renewed trust in the informed conscience of the faithful and in the work of grace in each person. The Pope emphasizes several times, we are called to form conscience, he said, but not to pretend to substitute ourselves for them. Amoris Laetitia, 37. This discernment of the person must take into account the various circumstances and possibilities of concrete action inserted in the history, a decision in conscience for which the indication of the law, how necessary they are, remain insufficient because they are marked by a necessity, by a necessary generality, unable of embracing in the absolute all particular situations. Amoris Laetitia, 304. Following the International Theological Commission, the Pope clarified that natural law, natural law is not to be considered as what is a priori imposed on the moral subject, but as a source of objective inspiration for his eminently personal approach to decision-making. Amoris Laetitia, 300. Four and five. It seems to me that the Pope is helping us to give due place to the moral norm in constant dialogue with the conscience and with the singular situations of action. 
I would add that in order to evaluate it, we have to take moral action in its entirety. That is not considered as isolated act, but an action, an act inserted into the singular history of the subject, which is also a complex interaction with others, within a narrative that gives meaning to it. And here the philosophy of Paul Ricoeur's helpers with his narrative theory to consider the action in a narrative way, which is a way to avoid to consider only material fact isolated. We have to consider the action inside the narrative of the action. If not, it's not human action in a sense. It's just an act, material act. So you see that the position of the Pope is neither laxist nor rigid. And it takes sometimes the form of ecclesial self-criticism. But it's very important for the pastoral implementation of the church rules in both moral and sacramental matters. Without in any way renouncing the requirements of the gospel, it opens the way to a detailed consideration of the singular situation on the horizon of a growth path with the help of grace. One could say that Francis is trying to implement a personalist ethic as the council has foreseen and that the Louvain theologian Louis Janssens had already tried to formalize. I don't know if the Pope read Louis Janssens, but <laughs> we could sometimes guess that there is some link. As we can see, Francis' uh, position is not exactly the same as what of his predecessor. If John Paul II, the second, has insisted in Veritatis Splendor on the objectivity of moral law and its relationship to truth in order to face the dangers of subjectivism and relativism, Pope Francis, as a good pastor, is concerned about the risk of exclusion felt by many Christians in the pastoral implementation of his morality in the field of sexual and family life. If the risk of rigorism was not absent from Veritatis Splendor because of its insistence on intrinsically evil acts and the obedience of the conscience to the universal norms, some do not hesitate to accuse Francis of relativism or even laxity because of his insistence on the cautious examination of particular situations, the taking into account extenuating circumstances, and his call to mercy. Simply put, with the risk to be simplistic, one could say that Veritatis Splendor insists on the truth and universality of morality, while Amoris Laetitia ask us to examine singular situations and the consideration of history. In a sense, we are invited to walk on both legs, universal norms and taking into account real concrete situations. That's good moral theology, I would say. It's a good tradition. In fact, precisely on closer examination, the two positions complement each other more than they oppose each other, even if differences remain, of course. According to Christian tradition, truth and history, universality and singularity must be thought of together. 
my professor Bernard Sisboué uh, always saying that we have to take the both sides of the chain in theology. You know, we have always in Catholic theology uh, dealing with tensions, and we have to keep these tensions alive. So we have to affect, we have to accept the fact that this tension, uncomfortable, but nevertheless inescapable, is to be assumed. This episode encourages us to think a better balance between the ethical consideration of moral norms and the theological aim of an ethics of virtues and growth in complex situations. The credibility of Catholic morality with our contemporaries depends on it. And the last book of Jocelyn is going in that direction, I think. And uh, because he speaks about reframing Catholic moral theology, and I'm delighted that he offers a useful framework for the research. Thank you, Joe. I come to my second field of research. A second field of research and development of post-coscular moral theology concerns the place and use of the Bible in Christian morality. The Council has called for a renewal of moral theology by nourishing it more with the teaching of Scripture. It should be remembered that between morality and the Bible is the distance was long-lasting. It's more a story of divorce than of marriage. <laughs> Particularly in the Catholic tradition, between of the because of the development of reflection of natural law. The moral theology was based on natural law. It was more a philosophical reflection than a theological one. But also in the Protestant tradition, because of a strong dependence of ethics on previous dogmatic considerations. Uh, let us think about Karl Barth, for example. In the post-conciliar years, in the pre-conciliar years, sorry, Fritz Stillman and especially Bernard Hering were almost the first to break the classic link between moral theology and canon law, between morality and confession, and began to broaden moral thinking towards a consideration of the ordinary moral life of the Christians, whose principal center and end is Christ. After this first attempt at the renewal of moral theology, irrigated by the mystery of Christ and the teaching of scripture, many theologians have continued this task. But we must acknowledge that this, ta this task has proved to be more difficult than expected. I think it can be said that we are still far from having exhausted this area, or even that we are still considering methods. There is certainly much to be expected from this research if we want to honor the fact that for a Christian, moral life is also following Christ, conformity to the life of Christ. But it's not so easy. So it's a field of research for you, <laughs> students, for the year coming. There are difficulties, and mainly epistemological difficulties. The first difficulty is related to the proper use of scripture in morality. 
there is always the risk of using the Bible as a book of rules where one seeks to discover a collection of commandments to be applied or drawn from them, as in a career proof text that will confirm moral positions based otherwise on philosophical or theological consideration. The, ecclesi the ecclesiastic texts are very uh, full of that. <laughs> Too often, this way of doing things, which not respect, does not respect the canonical unity of scriptures, the diversity of literary genres, genres or the historical, linguistic, and cultural context of the text in the biblical corpus. Moreover, when we look at the use that the moralists make of scripture, we can see that they make very different choices. Choosing, for example, to base one's moral theology on a particular corpus or text, or even a particular text, will produce different results that may be legitimate, but must be justified. Choosing to focus on commandment or to insist on stories will have not the same effect. It may be essential to rely on the epistle, the epistle of the, the letter of the Romans or and it, its, its emphasis on salvation by grace or, for example, on Matthew's gospel and its strong call to put in practice the word of God and Protestant and Catholic traditions have often made these distinct choices for theological reasons. But scripture is too rich a document to be used as a mind to be used for moral lessons. We have laws, narratives, hymns, wisdom writings, prophetic or apocalyptic writings. The word of God uses many ways to tell us who we are and what we have to be and to become. In addition to this diversity of literary genres that reflect different relationships between experience and language, there is also a diversity of ethics in the Bible. As most exegetes believe, that is a there is a diversity of ethics, including in the New Testament. And it's not easy to reconcile what Paul says with what Matthew or John says. Of course, we can assume that there is coherence between the whole Bible, taken up in particular through the theology of the covenant or a theology of creation. For example, there are two main guidelines to help us to make a whole with the Bible. But we have not to, to consider that Bible propose a ready-made moral. No. In general, these Biblical theology theologies are not legend, and probably they are not conversion with one another. Here again, a choice is imposed on the moralist who will have the ethics of his exegesis and vice versa. If you look at the literature on that, it's very clear. You, know, you choose, consciously or not, certain types or certain corpus of Bible text, and we let down other ones. Why? We have to justify that. To use the Bible as the source of food of moral theology, as the Council invited us to do, 
implies to enter into the understanding of the whole book. This requires the moralist theologian to become an interlocutor of exegetes and biblical theologians. The document of 2009 Pontifical Biblical Commission on the Bible and Moral highlights these difficulties and suggests that we practice a canonical reading, what he called a canonical reading. What does it mean? It means a reading that obliges to take the biblical message in the deployment of its historical movement and its successive reinterpretations. The, the document provides also useful criteria for the use of biblical data in morality and points out the danger of an approach uniquely thematic. You know, sometimes when we are using Bible in the moral theology, for the refugees, for example, or bioethics, we take the Bible with a thematic approach. But the text says, no, it's not sufficient. Because the consideration of refugees, for example, has to take into, into account the Genesis, for example, and all the theology of creation is for all nations. So it's not only when the Bible speaks about refugees explicitly that we have to consider that problem. We have to have a wider view. For moralists, the way they use the Bible, or rather how they learn from it, is also dependent on their conception of moral life. As has been said, moral life is not only about the application of norms, but also about the rereading of our experiences, the perception of our inner feelings, our imagination, our use of reason, listening to the word of God, listening to the other, etc. In its decision-making process, conscience is like a choir that uni unites a wide variety of instruments in a single harmony. If the word of God can inspire the complexity of this moral experience, it is also because he has a rich variety of means of expressions. It also means that it exerts its influence at various levels and in various ways. Speeches and precepts, for example, may be both directed at my intelligence, giving me landmarks. While if you read stories and parables, they will inform my feelings more, my imagination in depth. If you contemplate a miracle of Jesus, it may strengthen my truth in God's love. If you meditate a parable, may leads you to enter into a vision of the world of a merciful, merciful God. All things essential to decision-making. Without the Bible telling me clearly in that case, do this and not that. There is therefore a diversity of views of scripture in moral theology. This diversity is linked to the polyphony of the biblical data but also to the multiplicity of aspects of our moral life that can thus be transformed by the appropriation of biblical text. Paradoxically, perhaps the most important impact of the Bible on moral life is not where is it often believed. Berth and Rasmussen points out, quote, 
Despite the importance of explicit moral instruction in moral life, rules, principles, and maxims certainly have much less influence than dominant images and symbols, paradigmatic figures, rituals, and stories. End of quote. As Paul Beauchamp points out, I have put the quotation here, biblical texts in reality do not prepare us for our decisions do not contain an oracle concerning our practical action, but they build for us a world in the middle of which we decide for ourselves. They draw a horizon. Our decision does not immediately depend on our reading, but we are not the same when we have read, so we decide otherwise. So it is most often indirectly and through the analogical imagination that biblical texts shed light on present situation. The narrative method and the hermeneutics of biblical text, as conceived by Paul Ricoeur, of course, <laughs> but also Robert Halter and Daniel Margerat, it was a subject of my dissertation, that's why <laughs> I can speak about it, you know. And uh, these methods of analyzing, you know, they help us to uh, consider the Bible in its depth, inspiration, and the moral subject. You know. Because the biblical texts influence our fundamental attitudes, our social imaginations, our worldviews. And that's maybe the most important influence of the Bible. Otherwise, the research on virtue and their biblical roots is certainly very promising on this subject also. Another subject for you, students. <laughs> you know, the word, the American moralist, for example, James Keenan, William Spohn, Lucas Chan, have worked on that very lively. I modestly try to do so in my book on social virtues and to show the uh, biblical roots of attitudes like uh, justice, solidarity, hospitality, compassion, and hope. Though the ethics of virtue is undoubtedly one of the privileged means of collecting the moral teaching of scripture, and in particularly in the gospel. It is true the conversion of our imagination and the formation of our moral attitude that the Bible can bring the main contribution to moral life. This, of course, brings me to the third research program. The renewal of virtue ethics. Over the past 30 years, the renewal of this ethics of virtue is certainly one of the most striking phenomena of pure and moral research. Flourishing and even central for Aristotle, as for Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, the consideration of virtues in morality was gradually discredited after the nominalist turn in the 14th century, after Luther's attacks, and especially after the deontological, deontological ethics inspired by Immanuel Kant. If Luther saw in virtues a way of appealing to human merit, Kant 
dismiss this dimension from the plane of moral justification because of its explicit link with the principle of happiness, which, too contingent and subjective, cannot serve as a basis for universal laws. Virtue and happiness will therefore be permanently excluded from universal morality because they are too subject to diversions too marked by sensitivity, sensitivity and passion. The question of virtue in philosophy and moral theology has been brought up to date by research in the 80s on Aristotelian ethics, particularly in Anglo-Saxon circles with Martha Nussbaum, Elizabeth Henscombe, and more famous, Halester McIntyre, with his book published in 1981, After Virtue. They have given back to the ethics of virtue a place that it had gradually lost. In the United States, for example, authors like Jim Keenan, William Mattison are very prolific. In Germany, we have Dietmar Mitt. In France, Roger Mel, André Dumas, Vladimir Yankelevich, André Consponville. For Due to them, the virtues have gradually emerged from the ostracism to which they had been subjected. This renewal of the ethics of virtue is explained by several joint phenomena. Going back to what have been said about objective norms and the link between conscience, freedom, and truth, dissatisfaction has gradually emerged about reducing moral life to the debate on norms. As I briefly mentioned in the previous point, moral life is a complex whole which, in order to be truly understood, must take more into account the historical dimension of our existence. Moral decision cannot be reduced to the application of norms to given situation. It presupposes a duration a permanence in time that implies a reflection on the identity of the acting and suffering subjects. To do the right thing is not enough to know what to do, but we have to ask ourselves about the type of person we want to become. Virtues have stable predisposition to good deeds, are part of the personality of a moral subject, and they are the subject of education within a human group that has a certain idea of happiness to pursue. In a period in which prescription societies, which indicated to subject both their place and their duties, are ending in favor of an inscription society, in which the individual is forced to choose the values to which he or she attach himself or herself, identities are becoming more fragile, more uncertain, and the question of virtues is becoming highly relevant. Contemporary research has highlighted the role of practical tradition, the context of value, of values, in the construction of identity, and in the creation of a horizon of meaning for everyone. While ethics and identity are no linked, the question of moral education has once again become central. No, the research on education are very important for that. 
because the ethical subject is not given anymore. We have to train people to enter into the ethical world. It's not evident. And virtues are an important part of it. This is what appeared in the 2008 colloquium of the Association of the Moral Theologian in France on the place of Christian communities in the ethical formation of subject and of the colloquium of last year, this summer, was on moral education for today. So the return of virtue ethics is contemporary with the criticism of the inadequacy of Kantian-inspired morals even if they may be at times have been unfaithful to Kant by hardening his formalism. Sometimes, yes, we accuse Kant, but he's not always guilty. Faced with a moral of imperative and duties, the desire to pay attention to history, to person, to emotion has arisen. Faced with an ethics that is primarily concerned with the avoidance of evil and sin, which for centuries was the object of Catholic morality, linked with the confession, of course. We had to avoid evil first. So we have not to consider now the aim of good, what it is to do with the good. Desire for good, which became all the more necessary as the common core on which the morals of duty are based is crumbling today. We are no longer knowing what it is to do the good. The search for meaning being left to the consideration of individuals, living together is no longer at our disposal in a simple way. By defining virtue as a human quality that has meaning within a narrative tradition that can be transmitted within a community, McIntyre gives ethics and virtue the opportunity to reintegrate the historical, cultural, and linguistic dimension of existence. Even if his project can be criticized, as we have seen in the debate between liberals and communitarians, his research is stimulating and has generated a lot of work, especially among theologians, Stanley Auerbach, for example. The current reversal appears to be a return to the pendulum after an occultation that seemed unfair and forgetting an important dimension of morality. We have forgotten virtues and the desire of the good in the moral reflection. So the current revival of the notion of virtues seems to be linked to a distance from a perceived morality too imperative, too abstract, given priority to the just and to the respect of the law. And I note that in this regard, Pope Francis has a strong insistence of the ethics of virtue. And that's the first time we have, could see that in the magisterial documents, at least in the modern time. He insists on the progressive learning cut of a great internalized values which are translated into healthy and stable external behaviors. Amoris Laetitia 266. The contemporary reinterpretation of Aristotle and St. Thomas reinforces the consideration of the idea of good as an essential moral element. 
Many studies are currently returning to the theology of Thomas Aquinas' virtues. Among them, the most famous John Jean Porter, Nick Austin, Jean-Marie Gullet in France, many others. Finally, it probably also corresponds to a disillusion with an ethic of duty that is unable to generate responsible citizens by themselves, by itself. Morality is not just about norms and duties. It requires educating citizens to live a good and upright life. You know, democracy is Montesquieu says that. Democracy needs virtuous citizens. Despotism not. <laughs> Authoritarian powers need only to create fear. But if you need to create democracy, you need to learn to teach and to have a learning of virtues for the citizens. Because they have to, re to, re to renounce to violence, to accept the debate, and so on. And they are virtuous attitudes. And Pope Francis says, it is true that there is no sense in simply decrying present-day evils as if this could change things nor is it useful to impose norms by force of authority. Amoris Laetitia, number 35. Here virtue takes its rightful place. This leads me to the fourth debate. The link between morality and spirituality, and Johann Verstraten will be happy with that, I'm sure. <laughs> I mentioned earlier the work of the regretted William Spohn which makes it possible to make a transition to the fourth and final field of research that seems promising to me for moral theology. The link between moral life and spiritual life that this author has extendedly uh, explored. This place of research concerns both the examination of decision-making processes, but also the deep and lasting rooting of moral life in spiritual life. In what and how does the life of relationship with God concern the learning and exercise of a life that manifests a just and good act? Spiritual traditions, starting from the fathers of the Church, have much, much to say about this. St. Augustine, for example, does not distinguish in truth between what is the order of the enjoyment and knowledge of God, who brings the grace of redemption, and what is the experience of charity love, which is the center of morality. Morality, where everything is related to the enjoyment of God for himself, for oneself, and for his neighbor because of God. The same is true for the Greek fathers for whom love of neighbor in all its form and manifestations only takes on value in reference to God's love. I think about Maximum the Confessor or Basil of Caesarea. The theme of charity is certainly central to the relationship between morality and spirituality and a fertile source of work. Another field of research for you. Thomistic architecture of the Summa Theologiae articulates in a fine way, let us remember, 
the theological virtues and the first place charity with the acquired and or infused moral virtues. Virtue is for St. Thomas the place of mediation between divine grace and human freedom. That's a very important point. Virtue is a mediation between grace and freedom. The doctrine of the habitus infusus is certainly to be taken up again in its first intuition, which allows this human-divine synergy of which we have some difficulty today to account. We need a theology of grace again. And here again, the contemporary revival of the question of virtues can provide a suitable place to shed light on the profound influence of theological life on moral life. I made reference to William Spall. Let me explain a little bit what he has done, because it's an interesting example. Spall's argument is based on three pillars. First, it is a question of drawing conclusions from the fact that Christian ethics considers Jesus Christ as the concrete and universal norm of moral life. The good life of the Christian tradition which inspires our ethical aim is described in the Gospels through the accounts of Jesus' life. So the ethical analysis of the New Testament addressed the question of what does it mean to become disciple and follower of Jesus in a community. Moreover, the second pillar of this research is the ethics of virtues, which is the best way, the best able to collect the transformative effects of the biblical text insofar as it focuses on the moral vision, attitudes, and global formation of the person, his or her character. Finally, the third element is to associate to the moral research the consideration of the spiritual practices of the, spirit of the believing community. Prayer, service, liturgy. So it's a field of dialogue also with the liturgist <laughs> and with the practical theologian and so on. This will make it possible to see how the link between the ethics of virtue, the transformation of emotions in the appropriation of text, and the development of moral habits is made in concrete terms. Three places are discussed. First, Biblical stories shape our moral perception. It is not enough to judge well to act morally, since certain characteristics of our action precede any deliberation. Attending Bible stories helps us to determine which characteristics of the experience are significant for moral judgment and action. If you are not aware of question of justice, you will not, never see that there is a justice problem in the situation. So you have to train your vision to see the problem. Where is? Is it a, a, justice, a question of pro, a justice or not? So following Jesus direct our gaze in a particular way. Invite us, for example, to be attentive to the poor, to the little ones, to the stranger. This helps us to determine our interpretation of reality 
and guide our action. Once again, I'm struck by the fact that Pope Francis insists very much on acquiring Christ's gaze. <coughs> I'm sure he has not read Paul, but <laughs> you know, he insists on the fact that we have to look the tradition through the vision of Christ, through the gaze of Christ. If we want to implement the Catholic tradition in a just way, we have to adopt the Christ way of seeing that people. The second field of analysis concerns the dispositions and patterns of action that the biblical account inspires in its believing readers eager to follow Jesus. The scriptures does not tell us what we should do. I, I repeat that twice or three times maybe. <laughs> but the scriptures inspire certain dispositions of the heart. That is, dynamic attitudes that lead us to a certain type of action. As we have already mentioned, it's enough to give only one example. Attitudes of gratitude and hope are at the center of the moral response to God's benevolent action for us. The formation of a memory of the grace received pushes us to do the same for others. Third, the formation of our personal and community identity is the third place where the story of Jesus and the Church influences the action of Christians. Here we find all the achievements of narrative theology. Once again, the way we are using narrat narratology is very important. If the narrative is necessary for the constitution of the identity or individuals and communities, the biblical narrative to which the believer chooses to expose his life allows a set of dispositions to be structured in a specific way to form a determinate character. Moreover, the story of Jesus provides a framework for identifying with Christ and thus collecting in a creative and personal way the normative meaning of his life for each person and for the community. At each of these three levels, you know, the vision, the disposition, the pattern of action, and the identity, it is both each person and the community that exercises the necessary discernment to draw the normative consequences. The role of the Holy Spirit, of the spiritual practices, of the analogical imagination are highlighted each time. You see that a field of research is just being set up, particularly on the link between morality and liturgy, my colleague uh, Philippe Bourdet in the Institut Catholique de Paris has explored a little bit this uh, aspect of research. But it's very interesting. I see the students are very interested by this question, about the link between the practice of the worksheet and more formation of the subject. Other authors, Canadian or American, are working in the same direction, emphasizing the ethics of virtue, the link between morality and spirituality, and the pastoral dimension of moral education for Christ's disciple. One example is Richard Gula, a Sulpician who teaches in several seminaries in California, 
and has written several books on moral discernment. For him, the conviction is twofold. Moral life emerges from our spiritual life as its public expression. At the same time, it is its verification and authentication of the moral life. In such a way that the practices that nourish the spiritual life, prayer, liturgy, service, diaconia, have an influence on moral practices and that on the contrary, the ways of behaving in the world embody and sometimes modify our type of relationship with God. I have done some research on that. You know, all the people when they are engaged in social work, for example, they change their mind about what is God. Because they met people, so their vision of God is changing, evolving. And at the same time, different vision of God influences also their way they are engaged in social or economic or political world. Moreover, this convergence is only possible if we consider life, both moral and spiritual, not primarily as the evaluation of individual acts or isolated devotions or obedience to norms, but as a whole, animated by the desire for a virtuous life, in a sense, holy. It's the title of one of the last books of Richard Gula, The Call to Holiness. It retakes the, the call of the Council Vatican II to the holiness for all, in a way of reporting on the whole Christian life. According to Gula, the possible reconciliation between morality and spirituality is partly due to the reinterpretation of moral life as a response to God's gift and Christ's call in the spirit, but also to the emphasis on character and virtue formation that fuels much research across the Atlantic. For Gula, I have put the quote here, the aim of spirituality towards the integration of the whole of life around what it gives it its ultimate value and the insistence of morality towards the centrality of personal character and virtues offer a point of convergence for spiritual life and moral life, end of quote. How the person responds to God's love depends on our vision of God and how we understand this experience. The author defends the principle of incarnation that wants our experience of God to occur in and through our daily experience. Yeah, it's not, not only when we are in the chapel, of course, <laughs> that we experience God but in the daily life, in the meeting with the people. So the part of discernment of our emotions, of our imagination, the metaphor of God, become essential to achieve this integration. And Gula gives the example, for example, of the link between Eucharist participation and moral life. Formation of the profound disposition of the moral subject and essential contribution to moral discernment on these two themes, themes, the spiritual life plays a decisive and visible role that should for be further examined. Recent publications have highlighted the importance of this work, I think in particular to Charles Curran, Aristide Fumagalli in Italy, Catherine Finot in France, and others. 
I have no doubt that an important place of research would be to re-examine the relationship between the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius and moral life, as Karl Rahner had already suggested. You are doing it? <laughs> Much remains to be done, and it's certainly a promising field also. I hope you are not too tired. I'm finishing. <laughs> To be complete, it would have been necessary to mention other areas of the development of research in moral theology, but I was unable to cover due to lack of time. Just a few points. I'm thinking in particular of the complex relationship between moral theology and systematic theology. The Council has asked to restore this link between moral life and the great mysteries of faith. Here again, Multiple studies began to highlight the impact of Christology, for example, on ethical life, or the roots of the moral life in Trinitarian theology. I have no time to develop. The ecological questions has also brought to the forefront the importance of a renewed theology of creation. So we are lacking of a good theology of creation today, but it's very important for the ecological question and the moral development of that problem. So I'm turning to my conclusion. In general, fields of research in moral theology are by their very nature places for dialogue with other disciplines. Whether it is the study of the relationship between freedom and truth, the contribution of virtues, the influence of scripture and the link with spiritual life, the moralist cannot move forward without confronting the philosopher, the exegete, the systematic or spiritual theologian, the historian, or the specialists in the human sciences. The process of reunifying the moral theology I mentioned in the introduction requires such an interdisciplinarity approach. In this research, the moralist can only admit his inability to face alone the challenges he has set for himself or for herself, because there are also common challenges for humanity. But it's also a chance to be able to take into account the complexity of human life and action. Maybe we are, we, we are too simplistic in the way we consider action. We have to make it more complex. And within this dialogue, Curian moral theology also knows that its research is oriented by the desire to better understand what, is, what it is to act humanly. A human act conceived as a response to the love of the Father, to the call of following Christ within the grace of the Holy Spirit, who is addressed to every person. I thank you for your attention.